For April 22nd, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 251, Christopher Columbus's Zodiac Pontoon Boat. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm your host, Matthew Rather. I'm here with the panel of overthinkers, including one overthinker who has not been on the podcast in a long time. But we'll get to that in just a second. First, panel, your question tonight, what is your favorite pop cultural hammer? The tie-in will become uh, will become clear later, but for now, just take it at face value. Think of hammers in literature, in film, in music, pop cultural, in dance, in dance, <laughs> uh, pop cultural hammers. Uh, first in the alphabet, drink. It's Peter Fenzel. No, it's not. No, it's not. Is that really true, man? Oh, no. <laughs> Hey, first in the alphabet drink, it's Matthew Blinken. <laughs> Should we go back to the beginning? <laughs> no, we're into no, this. This is great. Let's keep moving. <laughs> I think we're off to a great start. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seize that low-hanging fruit. For anybody who watched uh, the Romania video I did uh, on YouTube this week, you know my, my preference for the lowest of all low-hanging fruit. <laughs> so low that like bugs could really crawl up. On, so low that I probably shouldn't be eating it because it's been like on the ground where anything could have happened to it. Uh, I'm going to go with the hammer song, If I Had a Hammer. Uh, written by Pete Seeger, popularized by popularized in my household. You know what? Somebody else pronounced it for me. Made popular in my household by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, that's the song that goes, if I had a hammer, I would hammer in the morning. I would hammer in the evening all over this land. But then it gets more confusing. He says he would hammer out danger. He would hammer out warning. And then most, most cryptic to me, he would hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. And to me, it's like, I mean, I guess you could consider the hammer to be like a a, a metaphor for something, but I sort of think of it as more like a cautionary tale that, that goes along with that old proverb that if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> that really, if, if what you want to do is create love between your brothers and your sisters, a hammer is not what you want to use. But I think he's saying that, like, and because he goes on in, in later verses to say if he had a bell, he would ring it in the morning, he'd ring it in the evening, that, that whatever he has, he's going to use it indiscriminately for the wrong jobs <laughs> at the wrong times. And so it's more like, it's, it's less sort of like a positive, like, wouldn't it be great if I had a hammer? And it's more like, isn't it, isn't it, uh, too bad that like the human race will just like misuse the tools that were given. Uh, I, I, I see it as about the dangers of sort of nuclearization. I can't pronounce it. <laughs> you don't think of the hammer as like the communist hammer from the hammer and sickle and the love between your brothers and your sisters all over this land as the proletarian revolution? <laughs> I mean, for some reason, I think of the hammer as the Care Bear stare. I know there's nothing in the text of the song to make that clear, but I always I associate the Care Bear stare with with it's it's this it's supposed to make you more kind and more loving and to solve emotional. It's a really a Star Trek solution to like a like a free to be you and me problem. <laughs> I don't know. Which is like it's like if the problem is you don't care enough, the solution is not to like point a ray beam at the person and like until they 
basically they're they're brainwashed into doing what you want them to do. The you know the solution is to I don't know is to socialize them better at a younger age. Um, but it's the same thing that the hammer is not the solution, nor nor is the Care Bear snare. Although I gotta say that like in that first Care Bear movie where there's the evil book in the carnival, it does seem like the Care Bear snare was the right was was the right hammer for that job. <laughs> uh, well. Uh, all right, Matt Blinky with the hammer from, uh, but he doesn't have it. It's only conditional. Yeah. If he, if he had the hammer. All right. Uh, all right. So drink again. Cause it's clear. I've been doing that a lot already. It's the guy I can't tell apart from Matt Blinky, Peter Fenzel. Uh, well, we're, you could tell us slightly apart, Matt. Um, I, I guess, how, who, I guess who are what, you? How which you... one, which one of you said that? <laughs> um, I guess what the one who hu- is the one who hung up the Batman tapestry, not the one who bought it. Uh, <laughs> is how I would differentiate the two of us uh, back when we lived together. Uh, I would say so. I'm a little torn. Uh, I'm a little torn between two choices. I might do the rare thing and mention them both, though I shouldn't take up options that other people would potentially like. So you know what? Instead, I will I will mention one of them, and then if the other one isn't mentioned, I'll go back and I'll name check it later. But the one that I am going to mention is by far the most jawsome of the hammers that will be referenced in today's podcast. Uh, it will, of course, be, that's right, Clint Bolton, a.k.a. Jab, from the, I can't necessarily use the word, popular television program, Street Sharks. Uh, I don't know if you remember the jawsome Street Sharks and their skateboarding action. Uh, as they wore uh, jeans and fought crime uh, in shark form in the, the the era in which it was profitable to make absurd Ninja Turtles ripoffs, but Jab uh, was the street shark who was a hammerhead shark and would use his head uh, that was shaped like the head of a hammerhead shark uh, to bash into things as a hammer, which was why he was called a Jab. Don't try to question it too much. Or actually, I should never say that. Question it a lot. Try to re- understand how these things could possibly come together as a confluence of, of details, because uh, it is, certainly is unlikely. But yeah, no, I, I feel like Jab really was the most jawsome of the street sharks. Uh, he did have a jetpack at times, because one knows that uh, sharks that are walking on land have difficulty getting around and require additional transportation. And so that's why they have jetpacks to fly around in. Pete, yeah. am I to gather that the street sharks are a cartoon? As opposed to a thing that happened in the 80s. They're a thing that happened in real life, yes. Okay. <laughs> they are. Do you remember Manuel Noriega? He was. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. Do you remember Manuel Noriega? <laughs> no, you could totally watch. In fact, both of my ideas were from relatively terrible, um, like, sea level Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> the Street Sharks was one of them, as was the other, which was the catchiest of hammers. But I will hold off on that one in case somebody else wants to use it. Pete, I'm shocked you didn't mention. Or I don't think this is one the, the other thing that you were thinking about, but I'm shocked you didn't mention uh, John Henry Irons' hammer, as in you know Shaq Steel. Oh, Shaq Diesel, yeah. No, of course, the one where he goes, "It's hammer time," and then he hits a car with it, and the one where Richard Roundtree is in a wheelchair and at one point says, "Dip me in bleep and roll me in breadcrumbs." <laughs> No, yeah, that, that movie's was- great. I've talked about that movie on the podcast before. That movie has a, one of the most wonderful meta-cinematic moments ever, where Shaq is inside of a small hat, hut with yet another character who's in a wheelchair, I believe. Uh, they're in a shed of some kind, and someone throws a grenade into the shed through a hole 
is about 10 feet in the air and a short distance away from Shaq. And Shaq has to pick up the grenade and throw it through the hole. And so, and he, and he before he sort of positions his feet, uh, he looks long at the camera with anxiety because, of course, Shaquille O'Neal had difficulty sinking free throws. <laughs> this was the free throw scene. <laughs> But no, but but if you do go to the Street Sharks wiki page on Wikia, which is the wiki that I am most surprised exists ever, um, <laughs> now don't don't be I'm not don't be too surprised because it has very little information about the Street Sharks, <laughs> but it does insist that there is although there's no detail on it that there is a Street Sharks parentheses 2018 film, uh, so there is a rumor that there will be a live action movie that will come out in five years. <laughs> about the Street Sharks, and it also insists that Josh Brolin will be in it. In fact, there is a page that is just labeled (laughs) Josh Brolin, 1968 to present, actor from Street Sharks, parentheses 2018. (laughs) Uh, It also lists, what, Taylor Lautner is listed as an actor who exists on the Street Sharks wiki, but it does not (laughs) inform you that he is in Street Sharks 2018. Nice. Uh, Wait, is the movie called Street Sharks 2018, or is it Street Sharks coming out in 2018, or both? Well, well, the movie could very well be called Street Sharks 2018, but they decided to put parentheses around it, which would be really confusing. Uh, (laughs) Because that would make it undifferentiable from a movie just called Street Sharks that happened to come out in 2018. now, on IMDb, that would be called Street Sharks 2018, 2018. Exactly, exactly. Which then, if you did it mathematically, would be something like, you know, 400,000 or it would be like, right. it would be at four zero, six zeros. So well, it would be four it's million. That, it's just that time machine movie with the dude from Memento. Yeah. That, isn't that like 400,000 years in the future or something? Dude, put that all together, Orlando Jones needs to be in the Street Sharks movie. That's all I'm saying. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was in that time machine. Exactly. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Uh, Mark Lee next in the alphabet. If I, if I have by now mastered alphabetical order, I think it's Mark, right? Uh, yeah, it's me. Yeah. Okay. Um, you guys might remember a small independent film from 2004 called Team America World Police. <laughs> it's going to do a brief dramatic reading from that, and hopefully you remember the hammer that I'm talking about here. <clears throat> Gary... If for some reason your cover is blown and the terrorists take you prisoner, well, you'll probably want to take your own life. Here, you better have this. Anyone? Guys, remember this is the point where right. you expect him to like, hand him a pill or something like that and he just slides a hammer <laughs> across the table. <laughs> to me, it was like a sublime moment of ridiculousness in this movie that remember 2004 is a very different time um you know like fresh off the iraq war maybe um, for you guys for me <laughs> um, george w bush was president um it's just like the hammer i still had most recognized, of my like, hair the blunt, yeah the, the hammer seems to that moment symbolize like the the blunt force with which the united states went about trying to solve its problems in the world you know much like if the united states you know it's for, at the time the united states foreign policy was a hammer and all the problems in the world then seemed to be nails with weapons of mass destruction Maybe it seemed to also represent like how the experience of terrorism, war, espionage, counterterror uh, seemed to lack the elegance, a certain elegance that had existed in the pop culture around it previously, uh, that perhaps had escalated over time involving Pierce Brosnan simultaneously having sex with and machine gunning like hundreds of people at once in some of those James Bond movies, yeah. which uh, lacked a certain simplicity. More than anything else, just a fantastic sight gag. In a movie full of fantastic sight gags. Yeah. In a movie that basically is a sight gag. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to I, I was I about to say, like, shouldn't it be don't you think it should be a uh 
like a, a, a scissors or something to cut the strings on the puppets, though maybe that's too high concept. No, the joke is that the joke is the cl- is a closure joke, right? Like the audience, you're hoping that the audience is going to imagine what it's going to be like for this person under duress, like to try to kill <laughs> by hitting himself with the hammer. And the way that you imagine it is going to be much worse than they could ever show it. <laughs> if the if the object doesn't provide a clear enough means by which the character could kill themselves, then the joke doesn't work because you can't imagine it clearly. <laughs> enough so it has to be something that suggests a method um such as like a hammer or like i don't know like a window frame <laughs> no, that what work. i just realized is that this is um an example of what a, a chekhov's object not coming into play right i mean this is, I this is not chekhov's hammer in other words chekhov probably wouldn't make a joke like this in one of his plays <laughs> yeah that's wait what really uh i mean I I don't... i've seen chekhov plays and I, i'm pretty sure that um you know like uh, you know, he references hammers and taking your own life with them in comical. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's probably true. But it's for different reasons. It's probably because people are actually going to take their lives with <laughs> hammers. No, but it's not like Chekhov isn't funny. It's just that Chekhov isn't like ironically self-referential as much, I guess. Although he probably is. He probably is. It just like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer wasn't as funny back then because it was something that people actually dealt with more often. <laughs> yeah, like that was that was the traditional Russian way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Speaking of the traditional Russian way, no, that's not. That's a terrible segue. God, I'm really batting zero tonight. But um, uh, it's time to introduce our surprise guest. It's it's overthinker Shana Malofsky. Hey guys! Yay! Yay. Thanks for having me on. That, what you act like it's doing you a favor. This podcast is your home, and no matter how uh, no matter how many times you can't be on it because of other better commitments, you still have a home here on yeah, this podcast. We're like your parents that they're we're going to guilt you, but you're always welcome. Look, I am. I've been trying to. I slaughtered this fatted calf over here, and I've been trying to stuff it through my cable modem towards you, Shana. <laughs> we know we know you're too busy for us. We know that you've got lots of very important things. What with writing your book and all. What? Uh, so uh, we, are, we are honored to have you back. Um, give us, a, give us a, a hammer, and it's no fair using your own. Oh, no. I, I couldn't use my own because, well, I guess it is a pop culture hammer, but it's a nonfictional hammer. Uh, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, I was thinking um, not of one specific uh, pop culture reference, but sort of uh, it's in many pop culture scenes, which is uh, this idea of hammer space, which is this um, sort of invisible zone where when someone says something terrible to you, um, usually you are a woman and a man says something uh, lecherous, and you reach behind you and magically a uh, mallet or hammer comes out and you can bonk him on the head with it. You, you can see this in uh, things like Ranma or other anime or other cartoon shows. And I think this is also the space where Donkey Kong gets his type of hammer. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I'm not uh, saying that I um, appreciate abuse, but I appreciate this idea <laughs> that there is this, like, I don't know, pocket there is a universe behind every woman. <laughs> yeah, where where just hammers exist, and you know, when you are angry enough, it can just come out of sort of like your spine. I like and that. I like that, Blinky. Behind every good woman, there is a good hammer. There's mm-hmm. a giant cartoon anime hammer. hammer. You go. Yeah, it doesn't ever make like a, a sound a real hammer would make because that would be disturbing. Um, it more makes like a tink sound, which 
is more adorable, you know, if you want to make abuse adorable, which I guess anime sometimes does. But is ha- there you go. I mean, is Hammerspace, has that been kind of generalized out to like the larger cartoon or fictional universe where like, I mean, Bugs Bunny pulls things out of Hammerspace and they're not, right. they're not always hammers, right? Like the... I don't know. I heard I heard once Mike Myers give an interview where he talked about like the in comedy the bottom of the frame was the location mm-hmm. of Hammerspace and like the whole mm-hmm. thing was like pulling stuff up, uh, pulling comical things up into the frame like a coffee cup full of poo. Well, probably also like almost every first person shooter video game, right? Where you have this amazing arsenal of about nine different weapons from shotguns to pistols to machine guns and rocket launchers that, you know, just with the tap of a button, you can um, pull out from behind your back and have armed and ready to go. Or like old school adventure games, like in Monkey Island, you could fit everything into your pants. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, in Ultima 7, there's this great like hack you could do where you could like uh, carry an entire boat on the back of your, uh, and then like you would put stuff inside of the boat. Makes sense. No, like a bag of holding. Sorry, a sorry, boat of holding. <laughs> Was that too nerdy? Sorry. <laughs> Plus, wow, plus you've been away for a while if you think that's too nerdy. Jeez. <laughs> no, it's yeah, like a red bag. Yeah, sure. I know you've been hanging out with your cooler friends, people who have a positive saving throw against dorkiness. <laughs> with your rule cyclopedia second edition, your, your newfangled AD&D. Back in my day, there was no A. <laughs> I use dice that have six sides. Just saying. All that's right. It. Let me roll a d20 to see who goes next. <laughs> I don't know why I'm still doing the parent voice. Um, it's me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I rolled a number somewhere between 1 and 20, so it's my turn. Uh, my, my choice is Captain Hammer from uh, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, portrayed uh, remarkably by Nathan Fillion, by the great Nathan Fillion. Uh, and especially his quote... Uh, when he uh, holds his fists up to Dr. Horrible and says, these are not the hammer. Um, that is a, uh, just an indelible moment. And even more indelible is the moment seconds later where he comes back and whispers, the hammer is my penis. <laughs> so why are, we talking, why are we talking about hammers? <laughs> uh, we're talking about hammers because Shana has written a book. Um, that has been published, and you can get it in 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 on the internet and everything. Indeed. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. Um, what is it with with overthinkers and the the genre fiction? The the like the awesome like readable, you know, exciting, uh, fun genre fiction. I I don't know, but we have a a thriller writer, and we have now a like uh, young adult fantasy writer. And I, I don't know, I mean, Pete, maybe you're going to write just a, a really awesome mystery, okay. and Matt, you're going to... No, 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 okay, a couple things. First of all, the title of the book is called Hammer of Witches. I'm sure, like, our listeners have been waiting to... Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's about. called Hammer of Witches. And, and the second yeah, thing is that alert. Matt Belinky and Jordan Stokes have written a mystery novel. Oh, right, they have written... Oh, so no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. I forgot, I forgot, of course, the mystery novel. So I think, oh, Pete, no. it might be you now to write just the, the most bodice-ripping romance. Yeah, I was going to say, it's going to be erotica. I hope you're ready for it. <laughs> 
<laughs> but this I is really not want... about the erotica I haven't written yet. It's about Shana's book, which is awesome. The erotica that I have written. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the young adult erotica that Shana has written. Well, that, that's really the young adult genre in a nutshell. Not my book. But. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, when you're all done writing your genre fiction, I'm going to write slash fiction. Just fan fiction that combines all the universes of all of your different books. Um, That's and it's, not what slash fiction is, Matt. <laughs> and it's just going to be just dirty characters getting it on from, okay. uh, from you know, pizza. I don't know. What did, what did we say you're going to do? Hard sci-fi. Pete's hard sci-fi. And I'll show you how. I'm calling erotica these days. The hardest of all sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so we are going to uh, talk a little bit about, about Hammer of Witches, but in a second, uh, because there are a couple couple things going on on overthinking it that I want to bring to your attention. One is um, one is that the Eurovision series uh, of our videos continues unabated on YouTube. The big news, what uh, what's the big news from this week? Oh, the big news from this week is that Matt, I think, actually went outside the studio. Matt went into the world and recorded a live. Um, uh, a remote segment. Isn't that what they call it in the business, Matt? You did a remote. I did. I broke the second. I I broke. I walked outside. Is what I did. <laughs> uh, which we have that technology now, apparently. <laughs> and you uh, you um, enlisted someone to hold the camera for you while you went out and uh, actually interviewed a uh, interviewed the proprietor of a, a liquor store. Uh, a about- very confused proprietor of a liquor store uh-huh. who's almost certainly thought I was like setting him up for some sort of like FDA. You know, some sort of like uh, some sort of sting on behalf of the city of New York, right? To see if, but uh, yeah, I, I did. It's it's almost audible. It's fantastic. It's pretty much the, the single best reason to get on YouTube this week. <laughs> right. Um, interviewing a liquor store uh, proprietor about Greeks ent- uh, the Greek entry in Eurovision, alcohol is free. Um, to determine from this uh, from this uh, fine shopkeeper whether alcohol is actually free. Yes, and I won't give away the the answer. But no, it may. No, it's not. It's not <laughs> actually. Spoiler, spoiler alert: the answer is no. Not at this one place. Although the, my my end is very small. <laughs> so For those we, of you in the know statistics <laughs> that the margin of error is huge in this particular survey. Uh, yeah, and n equals one. Maybe there maybe there is free alcohol uh, out there, but as yet we have not found it. So if you are interested in the Eurovision vi- videos, we're actually planning some great stuff uh, for closer to um, closer to the semifinals and finals. And in the meantime, we are reviewing all of the uh, all of the thirty nine songs in Eurovision. Um, so that continues on our Overthinking It channel. You can uh, just sort of click through any of the posts on Overthinking It that have the videos in them or uh, find us on YouTube by uh, searching for Overthinking It. And wh- why don't you subscribe to that channel so that the uh, videos are delivered to you and you get those um, uh, emails from YouTube reminding you that Overthinking It has posted new Would it kill you videos. to subscribe? Post a comment every once in a I can't do the parent voice. <laughs> Uh, and it's funny, like, I actually do have Jewish parents, Matt, and you don't. So I don't know why you're so good at that. <laughs> I don't Secret know. Jew. <laughs> Secret Jew. Yes. I actually, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I renounced, uh, I renounced my religion and, and became Christian. I converted when the Inquisition came to town. 
It happens. What? Um, so uh, beyond that, there's more video going on in Overthinking It because we continue our our set of Game of Thrones and Mad Men recaps. This has been uh, this has been fun to do, and both Pete and Shana um, have been on them. Pete, I don't know you you uh, you excited for our recap this week? I am. I mean, we record these on Sunday nights, so I have to catch up and watch the episodes after the fact. But yeah, no, I'm totally psyched for the recap. It's fun to be on camera. It's fun to talk with everybody. And it's uh, fun to see if we can remember the things that happened in the episode of television that we watched less than 12 hours ago. It is fun to so. be on. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to be on camera. And I guess from the recaps, more than anything, we, we love that people are watching them. It's it's awesome that we get into comments on, on the shows, on the uh, on the posts. The, the discussions are always really good. We love some feedback on the recaps. Uh, um, how we can make them uh, friendlier, more user, more accessible uh, for you. Um, offering them one thought that's come up is offering them in multiple formats so that you can get them as video if you want to, you know, stick our YouTube window up in a corner of your screen and, and watch it and also get them as audio so that you can download them and take them with you wherever you go. Maybe that's one way we could go. Maybe there are other ways. But so uh, those will go up. Those will go up tomorrow once we've watched some uh, some Game of Thrones and Mad Men. We're all pretty excited. Excited. We're going to do it after the podcast. Um, and then finally, the last thing is that this Thursday, uh, and that's Thursday, April 25th, all across the country, um, is the uh, big screen showings of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2. So uh, that's what, Seasons 3 and 4. Um and I think it's pegged to them releasing season three on Blu-ray, uh, where they have been going through and reposting all of uh, doing post-production again on all of Star Trek The Next Generation, not just like upconverting the old standard def episodes, uh, because those were, you know, those only exist on video at 480i, right? But actually doing new, beautiful 1080p um conversions uh, of these and 1080p is not that far off from like a 2k uh movie image so they look beautiful up on uh up on the big screen and so uh in different in different towns all over uh the country uh fathom events is showing these uh in movie theaters so you can find the one near you and watch overthinking it for some some details about uh, where to go, where we're going to meet, um, and where we're going to meet online afterwards uh, to sort of talk about it. Because they're doing these day and date all over the country, uh, it gives us a chance to maybe do some kind of virtual uh, virtual meetup, um, which is something that we have not been been able to do before because we all can't see a movie at exactly the same time. But I think at like 7 p.m. local time, wherever you are on Thursday, uh, th- there will be a movie theater showing uh, showing Star Trek in Los Angeles. If you if you care to join me in Los Angeles, um, we're going to the uh, the Century City, the AMC Century City 15. Um, I don't know if any of the rest of you are are going or have bought your tickets, uh, but uh, you know they're going fast, so get them now. And we'll also get some Facebook events and stuff like that. If you are going in Los Angeles, get a ticket in the smaller of the two theaters. The bigger theater sold out, so they opened a second theater, and that's the one that I have uh, that I have a seat in the uh, the smaller of the two theaters. And we can you know uh, actually in the back row, so we can take over the place and you know misbehave and you know show the world that overthinkers are uh, a rowdy uh, a rowdy 
bunch. Now, um, Shana, I know that you actually wrote an article for Overthinking It about the best of both worlds, part one and two, called uh, Borgs of Innocence and Experience. So it's a, it's a seminal uh, episode in the, the TNG canon, is it not? Uh, yes, uh, I wrote this a long time ago, so I don't remember exactly what it said, but I believe um, my thesis was the episode is not really about Picard or Locutus of Borg, um, but really about Riker grappling with um, becoming a middle-aged man. And I guess since he grew the beard, he really you know, felt like he was growing up and he had to figure out you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? Am I going to be a captain of my own starship or, or what? So I believe it was something about that. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I, well, no, that was it. I, I reviewed it and I encourage everybody to review it. Um, I recur before the, uh, you know, it's kind of required reading before you go to the, uh, before you go to the screening. Um, so that is, uh, that is Thursday. Uh, and as if we all haven't become middle-aged since, uh, since I started doing all these plugs, uh, one more shout out to, uh, to Jason N from Portland, um, who, uh, uh, an overthinker who just happened to come to Los Angeles, dropped me a line and, and we, uh, we had breakfast and I, I asked him about, um, I asked him about Portland and about, uh, whether it is actually like Portlandia. And his answer to me was that, uh, <laughs> Portland is like Portlandia to the extreme is to the same extent that Los Angeles is like entourage, uh, which is to say completely. <laughs> uh, so Jason N, uh, safe travels back to Portland. Um, can't wait to have an overthinking meetup up, up in Portland at one of your fine artisanal coffee roasteries or food carts. At some brunch place that we have to wait in line for, for like three days. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, yeah, that's uh, that's true all over the world, though, isn't it? Um, excellent. So, hammer of witches. Yeah, I sort of buried the lead there with the the hammer tie-in before. Um, so, Shana, as as though that's you a have you're not a bug, by the way. Buried the lead. Yeah, uh, Shana, um, y- you wrote a book. Can you say something about about your book and and what it's about? Uh, sure. Um, it's a young adult uh, fantasy book, historical fantasy. It is about this kid in uh, 1492 in Spain. He gets sort of uh, in, not involved, but uh, in trouble with uh, the Spanish Inquisition, but sort of a magic Inquisition, and uh, ends up on the run. And there is magic, and there are boats, and uh, there might be some Christopher Columbus, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. Spoiler alert. No spoilers, no spoilers. (laughs) Um, Sometimes people speak a little Spanish, but not much. And uh, yeah, that, that you should go buy it. It's available where books are sold so, so and wait, also wait, Kindle. Wait, wait. So Shana, Shana, you said that yes. there were boats in the book. Like, what kind of boats? Like, are they like oh, row well, boats, or are they boats that have sails, or like um, zodiac pontoon boats with outboard motors? <laughs> <laughs> well, all of the above, but primarily um, there were uh, boats called carracks, which were very large boats, um, and uh, the smaller ones are called the nao, which is N A O, and those are uh, Portuguese boats 
at the time. Uh, it's very important that you know this because there's going to be a test on it. Um, <laughs> and, and these are real uh, boats. These are actual boats you researched that you included into the book. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, uh, I, I know about the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria, and uh, they weren't actually pronounced that way, but I'm going to say it that way for the podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> Wait, how were, they, how were they actually pronounced? I know that, and, and I should confess that I am halfway through the book on my Kindle, um, I bought it this weekend, but some other obligations kept me from, from finishing it, which is what I wanted to do before this. But I, I was actually late to this podcast uh, Skype call because I was deep in reading Hammer of Witches and lost track of time. So I, oh, can't, I, can't, give, I can't give the, like, the kind of gripping and uh, absorbing nature of the book more of an endorsement than it, it made me late for this podcast, this very podcast uh, that I am recording about it. Um, that was really my goal when writing the book was to make you late to the podcast. So. <laughs> I well, no, like I, I do think that all authors ha- have me in mind. Yeah, for sure. I, but that's every reader's prerogative to kind of to kind of think that, and that's the great mystery <laughs> of literature that like it reaches across time to kind of speak um, speak personally to you. But who? I mean, who did you imagine? that you were speaking to? I mean, you call it a young adult historical fantasy, right? Like, do, do you have, do you have a demographic in mind or do, is there like, I, uh, this is a question actually not even really about the content of the book, but more about the, this part of the publishing business that I don't know a lot about, and, but I'm kind of fascinated by, um, do you like pick an age range? Do you, how, how does that whole thing work? Do you have to sell it in a certain way? Oh, sure. Um, well, for this book, uh, my demographic was really myself at age 14 or 13, being like, what would nerdy Shana want to have read at this time? Um, however, I was a very weird child, so this might not have been the best uh, audience to be thinking of. Um, so it, it was hard to figure out where we were going to market this. Um, it's tricky because it's a boy book, uh, meaning, I don't like the term, but meaning it has a boy protagonist um, and is more action-y um, than lovey-dovey. Um, and those type of books tend to be in the middle grade, which is, you know, like ages, I don't know, 10 to 12. My book is a bit older than that, so... Um, and. There's this idea that um, the young adult audience nowadays is very um, girls who are interested in sort of romance or uh, love love triangles. Also, terrible violence, like in The Hunger Games and Graceling and all that. So, I don't know, kind of a mix between the, the love and the cruelty, I suppose, is what the masses really want, so... So is the next a, book. Okay, so for, for, forgive me if I'm wrong. So there's a in the taxonomy of this, there's an assumption that an audience is going to read a protagonist that looks like them, right? So that boy books have boys as protagonists and are marketed towards boys, and girl books have girls as protagonists and are marketed towards girls. And so you you write you choose the protagonist for your book based on the person that you want to sell it to, sort of show them their own face that they're comfortable with. Yeah, well, there's actually been a lot of, not controversy, but discussion in the young adult field about, you know, uh, broadening our horizons and writing about more diverse main characters, um, especially diversity in terms of race and uh, ethnicity and so so on, um, and also disability or um, 
uh, gender, all that stuff. Um, so this book, because it is about, it has a multicultural cast. Um, it is published by two books. Uh, they are an imprint of Lee and Low Books, which has been around for a while. Um, and they specifically publish books uh, for a more diverse audience. Um, that said, uh, those books don't still don't sell as well as you know the ones with the the white people on the covers and the pretty dresses. So, um, New York Times actually had an article um, about a month ago, maybe a little more, about how there are no books out there for young adults with Hispanic characters in it, and uh, that's not actually true. But I guess the New York Times. You know, isn't you know? You look at the bestseller list, and that's not who you see. Uh, unfortunately, their roommate in college, who now works for the publishing house across the street, wasn't making it themselves. So oh, that's yes. why they get into the article. <laughs> that, that's pretty much. Right. But uh, that aside, um, well, I mean, because this is a, this is an issue because we talk about race and gender and diversity a fair amount on the site and on the podcast too. <laughs> this I, this sort of um, consumer culture presents a unique sort of challenge to people who would be sort of intellectual torchbearers, right? Because it's like, you can't, you don't really have the power to make the top-down decision to compel people. You are all going to read a book about a Hispanic person because it would be good for you, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you want to do that, potentially. Like, you're like, well, that would be good for them, so we should do that. But at the end of the day, the way that the books are distributed is, is determined by the money that people pay for them, which is a voluntary choice. And so as such, if people don't want to buy those books, even if they say that they want to read them, even if like even if they say they would like to see them, if when push comes to shove, they don't buy them. You know, if they don't actually use part of their paycheck to purchase it, then it doesn't get this. Even if it either it doesn't get made or it doesn't get the exposure to the point where the New York Times doesn't think it exists, right? Like, I mean, that's a huge problem because it's it's very easy to. I've, I don't know. I've, I'm ranting a little bit because I've encountered this across all sorts of different kinds of content conversations. But being in the business, I'm sure you've experienced it just as much. It's like people love to blame the creators of things for indulging the prejudices of their audience. But there's a sort of anthropic principle issue where if that person weren't indulging the prejudices of their audience, they would not exist in terms of how you understand them, right? Like, you, they would not be the person that you are seeing. They would just be someone else because the consumer demand isn't something that you can just pretend doesn't exist. To really thread that needle and present something to the consumer audience that compels them to buy it, that they want to see, that they're excited about, and that also promotes this sort of, you know, something that you think is a good thing to do, that's a really difficult task. And it's not, it's much harder than just thinking that it's right or determining that it's going to have, you know, extrinsic or intrinsic value. You know yeah, for I mean? sure. I mean, it's sort of a chicken and egg problem because um, the marketing departments of the big publishing houses, from what I understand, you know, they um, you, they say or they kind of have veto power over what books they buy. Um, and if they say, oh, we think our audience only likes this type of book, that's the only type of book they're going to buy. And then they're going to market it for that specific uh, niche audience. Um, if you... I don't know, if you have a marketing department that says the only thing that sells is romance books with, you know, frilly dresses on the cover, um, then that's all the they will publish. And then you'll have boys say, well, I don't want to read that. And then they don't read. And then, you know, it's sort of an autocatalytic cycle where then they say, oh, well, boys don't read, so we're not going to buy boy books. And, it, you know, it keeps cycling on and on like that. Tricky. Right, right. I mean, when I was, a, when I was gosh... 
I'm trying to think because guys, when we were like 15 years old or so, I don't think I read young adult fiction that much anymore. Right, like I had moved on to like, well, so what would be in the science fiction section? Yeah, but it right? didn't. Would... It didn't have. I mean, it didn't exist quite in the same way. The category was very different uh, than oh, okay. now. I mean, don't yeah, don't you cool. remember that? That that like, I think that like Harry Potter and and the Twilight books and I don't know. I I I would like to say like Philip Pullman, though though I guess he probably was less of a commercial success than than. Uh, um, than Twilight and Harry Potter, right? Like, have changed have changed that space to to where it's a different thing, uh, different thing than it was now. Like, I, I you know, I read like, I, I I read some some young adult books when I was like nine or ten, and they were about like they were aspirational books about how cool it was to be in high school, and you know the cool things that people in high school did, like playing in bands and stuff. Um, I'm gonna see if I can find some Amazon links. Did that to happen? Them. Well, I mean, are, are you referring to, to Gossip Girl, or, or are you more <laughs> of a fan of the Gossip Girl TV show, or are you also? Do you have a first edition shelf of all the Gossip Girl trade paperbacks? Have you read the books? <laughs> I I actually have not read the Gossip Girl books, and it's something that that uh, Ryan Chile and I have talked about um, wanting to do and to do a comparison because he and I are are I th- I think it's fair to say world class experts on the Gossip. Girl television show. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and you know we could we could probably say a lot, um, and then we could read the books and say a lot more about uh, what uh, you know what the what the differences what the differences are. There's actually a New Yorker article that I have read about the differences between the Gossip Girl television show uh, and the Gossip Girl books. But like Gossip Girl is something that sort of didn't exist in 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 quite the same way, right? Like. Um, I you know I don't know uh, but uh, yeah I was I I too was on to to bigger things like actually when I was sixteen or seven uh, like uh, nineteen ninety seven is when um, Game of Thrones was when uh, yeah Game of Thrones came out the first volume of Song of Ice and Fire and I actually for a little while had a um, first edition of that which is worth a lot of money now and I gave it away to a lady and never got it back. Ooh. <laughs> Well, so if you're listening now, bring it back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's probably Um, not mint, you know. (laughs) Fair enough. What are you saying she did with it? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, it's interesting because there are books that back in the day would have been sold as adult books, which today they would probably be young adult, like Catcher in the Rye, for example, or Ender's Game, I don't think was marketed as young adult, um, but today certainly would be. Um, And actually, Game of Thrones, if you took out all the chapters from the point of view of the adult characters, if it was all the Stark kids, they could sell that as young adult, no problem. Even with all of the sex and violence, you know, anything goes nowadays. So, I mean, fun fact, Game of Thrones, I I, I think it may have been the first place that it was published, but but it was um, uh, excerpts, the Daenerys chapters from... the Daenerys chapters from the first book were strung together and published in Asimov's um, science fiction and fantasy pulp magazine, which I also used to read back, back in the, at the age that we're talking about. And so like in 95 or 96, I read the Daenerys chapters, um, which is what turned me on to the book and made me like buy it the second it, the second it was released. And like, that was a, a sort of a young adult, 
sort of uh, sort of book, right? Like uh, what? Let's do it. Daenerys is Bella, right? Khal Drogo <laughs> is Edward. Or Jacob, maybe, because he's, you know, associated with four-legged, you know, animalistic stuff and not with refinement and culture. Uh, I guess it breaks down after that. Guys, guys, I don't know much about Game of Thrones, but I just had this fantastic vision of taking the Game of Thrones franchise and creating new TV shows that are targeted at a different age bracket, so like Game of Thrones High, and then you sort of go all the way down until you eventually get to Game of Thrones Babies. <laughs> if you guys remember, if you guys remember Muppet Babies, right? Muppet oh, yeah, of course. Babies. Of course. It's a far less obscure show than Street, street Sharks. So yes, <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's like Gossip Scribe, right? <laughs> um, so, so oh, okay, go ahead. So, speaking of speaking of multiculturalism, I mean, you you. You chose it. You chose a time that is like sort of maybe unique in human history, or not? Maybe not unique, but is very special in human history. In that that like Andalusia, in that sort of part of the Middle Ages, had been this like flourishing community where different religions and um, you know different ethnicities kind of lived side by side. Uh, un- until the, the what the Inquisition ruined everything, and right like and and sort of sort of lived in and uh, lived and flourished, um, but you don't you don't sort of shy away from those differences, and you don't sort of shy away from the like what the like the race baiting or or religious name calling or stuff like that in the early chapters that that uh, you know that that goes on like among the kids in the in the, in the community and i was thinking about this with like um i was thinking about this uh, compared to say the violence it it somehow felt felt more visceral even to me than some of the violence of the hunger games which you can kind of dismiss in the fan- as far as being fantasy because like those those are still open wounds today you know and so it's uh, were you trying to to comment on the the present moment or what a stupid question but but maybe you'll you'll deign to answer it anyway well first i have to be a history nerd for a second and be like well it wasn't the inquisition that did it it was the you know the king queen uh you know spain or i guess castile and aragon at the time taking over andalusia from the the moorish uh kingdoms uh and then they brought in the inquisition so it wasn't the inquisition that did it it was Isabella, really, ah. who did it? Anyway, well, so actually, something that's, being something that's nerd. Often, yeah, it's blamed <laughs> on the church a lot, but it's all, the Spanish government was like a big factor, or the government was now Spain, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Different. The Spanish Inquisition was distinct from the other Inquisition, the, the Pope Inquisition. Anyway, um, so what was your question? Yeah, multiculturalism. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to get into like authorial attempt, uh, intent, but yeah. Uh, no, I, I, ha- I, book- have it, uh, I have it on good authority that you are dead. I am, indeed. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, this but, is not uh, actually Shana. This is just a recording of Shana's voice that you're <laughs> listening to right now. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting how I was able to predict what questions you were going to ask me, even you know, though I said this you know about a year ago no it's painstaking it, this this episode has been years in the making like it's it's a painstaking recreation of trying to fit in our little bits into the gaps that you left in your tape it reminds me of that episode of doctor who uh blink anyway uh <laughs> reference which which was brand new when you made this <laughs> yes it was <laughs> good <laughs> like that moffat guy he's going places um 
Yeah. So yeah, definitely. I I was thinking about today when I wrote the book. How can you not? Um, I think. 1492 was, I mean, the world has always been globalized, but 1492 is really the time when it became really globalized in that they saw the other half of the globe for the first time. So I think uh, the idea of that and, you know, how cultures are shared, I guess, uh, how they diffuse uh, through different countries um, and how that sometimes leads to good things and sometimes leads to very bad things. I thought that was just a very interesting moment to talk about or to look at. I liked it. Yeah, I mean, you need a frontier. You need a frontier in order to have adventure. I mean, you need a great dark section on the map that you can sort of uh, plunge into. You can charge headlong into, right? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, I guess you could link to it. I had a post on uh, John Scalzi's blog, uh, whatever blog. He does a big idea thing where he has authors talk about um, the big idea behind their books. Um, And I'm not going to say this was the big idea I had when I started writing the book, but I sort of overthought my own book and said, you know, this is sort of a book where if you took the regular quest story that you would see in, you know, Lord of the Rings or, I don't know, like the Chronicles of Pridane or something. Um, if you put it in the real world on a real map where the you know the dark forest is the Caribbean, the story becomes really really interesting um, from a you know post colonial perspective. If you want to be like all academic about it, but also just fun. Well, let's call it. Let's call a. Let's call a post colonial a post colonial. You are being sort of academic about it, right? Like that is oh, yeah. kind of the attitude of writing the book. Exactly. Don't pretend that this isn't a post colonial. I, I mean, like, I, criticism yeah. piece. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, it just, clearly is. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it's and it, but it's framed in an exciting story that you hope people will like and will mm. and clearly people do like and. It's Wait, fun sorry. There, there are dragons. Let me let me uh, do the advertising. <laughs> there are dragons and there's a sea monster and I don't know. Lizards. Yeah. And as far as I, uh, at least two thirds of the way through the book, there are no cyborgs in it. So I'm not done. There's still a chance. Well, there could be a sequel, Mark, you know. Yes. Here's the thing. At the risk of dumbing this whole thing down, I have to ask are you familiar with the cartoon The Mysterious Cities of Gold? No. I this didn't a, have cable, so if this was on cable, you should blame my parents. It, it was it was it on like really early Nickelodeon guys. It was yes, but it's French actually. That's why it's Is kind it? of not as well known. I, I mean, believe just to, because you don't know about it, we won't really talk about. It, but just very briefly, it it starts out in I believe 1530 Spain, <laughs> and it does. It is a sort of fantasy story about traveling. It's, to the ja- it's Japanese. Versions. It's Japanese. It's not French. It's Japanese. Yeah. Oh no, I mean, it, it was shown on France too. Never mind. They go to the new world and it's sort of this race to find these mysterious cities of gold but then there, there's there's fantastic elements such as there's some magic there's a airplane literally an airplane that they that, you know like the a magical aztec airplane that they find at one point so it is sort of this this but it, I, I mean the, the reason it sort of popped into my mind is that both the setting being like you know that that era of spain but then also sort of like leaving and and the new and the map expands and that there's this new realm of adventure and imagination and the possibilities you know the, the idea that like we don't know what we're going to find over there um, and that, like, maybe if, if there's sort of, like, the, the constraints of the old world are sort of uh, chafing, um, you know, you can, you can sort of go across the ocean, and the rules are all different. Well, that's true. On the other hand, they sort of also brought the rules over once they got there. Um, 
immediately uh, they were, uh, I don't know, I forget the name of the document, but they would take out these documents, these formal Spanish legal documents, and sort of stand in the middle of a field and read them out to whatever indigenous tribe they ran into, uh, you know, so they could say, oh, you know, we are the Spanish and we are here and we are not going to kill you. We are here, you know, uh, because God sent us. And also, if you try to fight us, we will murder you. Um, and this was all, like, Spain was very legalistic. So they had to, you know, cover their own asses, I guess, and say, we're doing things the way it has been done in Spain for several centuries. And we are bringing that to the new world. And everything is kosher. I guess kosher is the wrong word to use, post-inquisition. <laughs> but, you know, so... Which- it's easy to laugh at that, but, like, if we were to go and visit a, a planet with aliens in it, there's no doubt that, like, there would be protocol to follow. Oh, for sure. I mean, would it be yeah. better if there weren't? Would it be better if they didn't have legal... I don't know. I mean, right, in, in a way, it seems laughable, the idea that they would go there and read off a proclamation in Spanish, but, like, what else do you expect them to do? Yeah, it has, uh, I mean, yeah. it has something to do more with, like, their, the self-image of the, you know, of the people, yeah. right? Of, like, preserving the idea of being sort of noble, um, deliver, delivering the savages from savagery rather than being, you know, conquerors. I mean, we talked, we talked a little bit, Pete and I talked a little bit about the imperialistic project uh, vis-a-vis Rudyard Kipling um, a couple episodes ago and like the idea that the uh the idea that the the uh conquered people may not may not want you there or the the idea that you know you may not be as welcome your your god-given civilization may not be as welcome as you as you imagine it will be um in whatever new world you are sort of penetrating into is uh i mean that not just not even just that idea but just the way that that experience affects the way that you do things sure right like it's like the imperialist also is aware of the fact that the that what they're doing may not necessarily be what people want to have happen right and so it leads to, it leads to it leads to all these things that are uh, in a phrase that I know Pete likes to use, uh, that are an exercise in question begging, right? That that uh, that sort of seek to seek to foreclose the question of whether the enterprise we're engaged in is is actually good or worthwhile. Yeah, I think that's a good. Um, I think you can analogize my uh, or the hammer of witches or uh, what what the Spanish were doing at the time to what the British were doing. Um, you know, more recently, um, in terms of they, the Spanish, they not to go off into a historical tangent too much, but when they went to the Caribbean, they said, this is our land to begin with. And they knew that, um, the indigenous people didn't like them very much, but, um, it wasn't like they were viewing themselves as invaders. They were viewing themselves as, this is our land, God gave it to us, and these people who are rising up against us are rebels. So it was very Star Wars-esque, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. It's funny oh, that you bring up Star Wars. I, I, want, I have something I want to say about Star Wars, but, but Pete, why don't, you, why don't you go first? Well, I was going to say, well, if it's Star Wars-esque, just clarify who is who in the Star Wars narrative. Well, in this case, uh, then the Spanish would be the Empire, and, you know, the Taino would be the rebel scum, I suppose. But they weren't, you know, they didn't view themselves as rebels. They said, this is our home. Like, who are you people? So it 
it was sort of a clash of not just civilizations, but ways of viewing each other, I guess. I mean, how funny is it that, like, you know, the the Ewoks on Endor are basically a Kipling-esque imperialism, almost parody, right? About, like, uh, unwashed native peoples fighting off an, an, an advanced military. And yet, like, in order to try to understand what this sort of historical situation was like we use the star wars as like a gateway in <laughs> so wait what was it like to be in this place that's about a thousand miles away it's like this fictional space story that we talk about sometimes i don't know it just seems like the snake eating its own tail in kind of an interesting way through fiction and all well i, I only make references to star wars so that's the yeah, only yeah. language i know sorry about that but you said there's some spanish in the book take up anyway, the, take up the fuzzy story. man's burden <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Spanish and Mandalorian. But the, I mean, the the interesting thing, like you know, sort of science fiction fantasy gets called out a lot for being politically retrograde to the extent that it's anti democratic, and to the extent where these sort of um, self reinforcing elites, like you know, Jedi Knights, rule by by virtue of superior uh, rule by virtue of superior virtue, right? Um, of su- superior aristocratic. Standing uh, over, you know, less worthy, right, less worthy individuals. And in the case of the Jedis, well, they are better, right? They are a better class of person. But that is the story that that sort of every every uh, imperial, uh, right, every sort of conquering culture has sort of to- told itself about itself. Um, and that that there is there is a sort of what a, a sort of project of. I won't say revisionism because that word has such bad connotations, but but there is a project of sort of undermining the kind of triumphalism, uh, right, of that narrative in in your book and in in some other in a trend in in kind of more democratic sort of science fiction or fantasy writing. Yeah, I think so, but I don't want to give the impression that Hammer of Witches is only trying to subvert tropes. I think it's trying to think of a different way of doing fantasy, sort of rebuilding it, if I can be so arrogant. (laughs) Not that I'm doing it like all on my own. Obviously, there are other, you know, Game of Thrones is undermining the old fantasy stories. Obviously, there are other books that are doing this. But, um, you know, it's not a negative book. I mean, it has negative parts in it. There is, you know, war and genocide and so forth. But, um, yeah, I think mostly it's a hopeful book and this idea that both um, humanity and possibly fantasy literature can find another way of being that doesn't have to be so uh, imperialistic, maybe. Yeah, sure. I, sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to undermine your marketing effort. Uh, <laughs> no, su- no, no, to subvert, <laughs> right. to subvert that. And and if I hadn't, um, if I hadn't made it clear, everyone should go out and read this book now because it's it's fun. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, because it's a good. Because yes, it's, it's meant a to be fun. <laughs> um, Primarily. Yeah, but it's uh, you know. Uh, but uh, but there is there is a lot going on, which is part of the kind of the the pleasure of overthinking. Um, it's a, it's available to the pleasure of overthinking, which not all young adult literature yeah. uh, so, is. Matt, you're steering us away from the you know the whole like imperialism and anti democratic uh, talk, and, and you know to, to focus on the, the pleasurable aspects of the of the work. But I want to take us back there for a moment, if it's okay. Um, and and and. and analyze it from a slightly different perspective um when you're talking about the jedi knights and they're like this uh you know elite this aristocratic elite right they have these special powers because they were born with them and that's a kind of a problem problematic aspect of a lot of science fiction and fantasy um 
And in this book, now Shana, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you know the the magical aspects of it, right? Like you know the main character. Spoiler alert! You know he can he has magical abilities, right? He's a witch. He can cast spells. Um, but in your book, um, you go out of your way to say that it's not just like the special chosen ones who are born with that ability, right? It's sort of like anybody can do it. So you're not quite like oh, that sort of Harry Potter model, right? As far as I know of Harry Potter, like you're you're born a a wizard or you're born a muggle and that's it, right? Yeah, it was definitely uh, the magic system was meant to be more democratic. I think, um, yeah, the book in many ways is trying to be more democratic, even in the sense of the main character uh, says things which in other books wouldn't be questioned, but then other characters in this book definitely question him very hard and, you know, say... Like, why do you think just because you're the hero, you can do X, Y, and Z? Maybe you aren't the hero. Maybe you should shut up. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I don't remember if I did it on purpose. Maybe I did. I don't know. It's been a while. But, yeah, I guess I did think for uh, this magic system would definitely be different from Harry Potter. I've never really liked the Harry Potter. It seems like... Um, you know, she's uh, J.K. Rowling in the book seemed against this idea of blood purity in the wizarding world, like with mudbloods and so forth. Um, and Voldemort was very Hitler-esque. He wanted, mm-hmm. you know, this pure wizarding race. But on the other hand, the characters in that book are very anti-Muggle because I guess it seems they don't have magic. So I guess their blood is even, you know, worse than a mudblood's blood. The mudblood being the half magic people so i'm not super familiar with harry potter so i'm going to steer my us back into sure, sure. My, more familiar with character which is star wars um i mean like the function of the jedi knights being super special and having this rare ability that they're born with um it's it, it, you know it, when, when we when we talk about fantasy it means that we are fantasizing we are sort of escaping and dreaming about this life that is different from ours. It's not a table from ours. We can like latch onto it vicariously and experience that right like there's some magic and specialness about that, which we shouldn't totally discount, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I mean, like like Luke Skywalker, right? Like uh, treads that line where like he's relatable. We can relate to him because he's just like this, you know, regular old farm boy at the beginning of it. But then, like, oh, ta da! He has these powers, and he goes on an amazing adventure after that. Yeah, for sure. But again, you could definitely flip it around. I haven't read the um, the later books, which I guess may or may not be movies now. I, I forget if they're basing the new movies on the extended universe. But, um, you know, you could flip it around and say that once the rebels take everything back from the Empire, they're just the new Empire. So the story of Luke Skywalker is actually um, the story of how the emperor, the new emperor got to be the emperor. And of course it looks like he's a nice guy who, you know, he grew up on the farm. Uh, he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, had special powers. Um, you know, it seems like, I don't know, like a way of saying, oh, this is why I deserve to be, you know, the new emperor of this place. And you should, you know, should bow down to me possibly. You know what I'm saying? Mm. <laughs> it might make well, any sense. Here's here's a I mean here's a question, um, and and maybe as sort of as you sit down in your in your project to consider it, I've, I've been still thinking about this idea that um, people like to see protagonists who are like themselves, 
mm-hmm. and that people resist buying books that have protagonists that aren't like themselves. Like Mark just bringing up like Luke Skywalker, right? Like Luke Skywalker is somewhat of a, of a bit of a, you know, he's a bit Aryan, you know, blonde hair, blue eye, and all that nonsense. Yep. Uh, but it's like he's the everyman that we're all supposed to identify with who makes the rest of the story accessible. And you don't really have an option of telling Star Wars without a character like that in there. Oh, so the they, question, they, they tried in the prequels. <laughs> it doesn't work. Failed. Uh, <laughs> which is sad because it's like a sad fact. It's like, well, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have this burden of this like every man who thus sets up everyone who isn't like him as being abnormal? Um, and especially in terms of young adult fiction, which I feel like a lot of the time is about children kind of trying to understand growing in adulthood. And as such, there's there tends to be an aspirational quality to young adult fiction where the character has to enlarge in some way, right? Empower, enlarge, embiggen because it's about growth and it's about puberty and it's about uh, you know looking into the other parts of your life where things are going to be more impressive for you than they are now. These are not novels which are about like facing death in the sense of like inevitable death, right? It's like it, I, maybe there are some in the young adult uh, young adult genre, but I suspect most of them are not uh, like sort of these heavy duty novel kind of things. I mean, they say heavy duty in the sense of tone and in the sense of like happy versus sad. Um, right, so there is a – because of the people who are reading the book, the reason that they are buying it, there is a really strong tendency within the genre to have these characters who look like you get awesomer and better, um, which at the same time is sort of about aggrandizement and particularly about – in the way that people group themselves versus others, there's something that's essentially imperialistic about it, right? Because it's like you are the peoples who should be awesome. People like you should be the people who are in charge, right? And it's very difficult to wrestle with that kind of consonance, even if it's something that, even if it's a bit subversive. I mean, this is a feeling I had reading the first two books of the Hunger Games series that I feel like... um, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head again. Is it Susan Collins? Yeah, no. Collins. So I got that right. I heard that. I'm like, that must be wrong. No, that's right. That she explodes in the third book. No pun intended. Like she very yeah. deliberately addresses this in in Mockingjay. Like yeah. she's I like, really I enjoyed yeah. the third book of the Hunger Games because it does sort of subvert the the simple pair. You know, the the, the very like black and white dichotomy of like yeah, you know, yeah, capital yeah. bad, everyone else good. And yeah. she really like turns that around and, and shows that like it's really not that simple and not that easy. Yeah, exactly. And so like there's this idea that we should be comfortable with Katniss as a protagonist because even though she's an imperial protagonist, she's not an imperial protagonist of a sort other than the ones that we currently don't like. And thus we should root for her because she's different. But then it's like, well, she's really not all that different. Or is she? Right or is are the people around her? So, like, how do you approach this question with your protagonist? I mean, you're a woman writing a boy book, right? And it's like, and you want to also sort of subvert this political discourse of people who have traditionally been called powerful, and you want to sort of change that and reinvent this genre so it's less problematic from a political standpoint. But you still want it to be fun, and you want it to be something that people want to read, and you want it to engage people of this particular age group. So, like, I mean, how do you even approach these questions? It seems like it's something that I would that would drive me crazy. Well, I mean, ideally in any book, not just this book, when someone gets superpowers, usually, or or ideally, that makes their lives more difficult, not not easier. So that would be a way of making it more fun because it creates more conflict. Um, And, I mean, yeah, it's it's a tricky balancing act. I I hope the book is fun. Um, But uh, I think in this book, it's a little different because it, again it's not like the magic comes from you're just uh, an awesome person who was born awesome it uh comes from storytelling um so the the magic 
comes from, I guess, I don't know, uh, not intellect, but sort of trying to understand the world around you. So in that sense, I guess, I don't know, it, it, again, it's more democratic magic, I suppose. I don't know, it... Maybe you guys should just read the book. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a great suggestion. I didn't really mean to, but it's been a crazy week in Boston, and I haven't gotten Oh, yeah, oh, no, it. of course. <laughs> I apologize for that. Uh, I have uh, some very specific couple people that you can blame for that if you want to, but that might be a uh, little bit too soon. Uh, uh, Neil Diamond for being awesome, as I heard him sing on Saturday, and it was great. <laughs> so, and I should have been reading Shana's book instead of listening to Neil Diamond. No, Di- Neil no, Diamond. no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's been... I'm, Neil Diamond, punchy. greater than Hammer of Witches. That's uh, wow. Just well, we gotta, well, we got to find Neil Diamond so that he can give a positive review for your book, so that he can compliment you to get you back for the compliment you just gave him. So right. it's all oh. even and balanced. Did you send? Did you send a review copy to Neil Diamond to get a blurb? I haven't yet, but I'm going to do that right now. Yeah. I mean, Neil Diamond has his own treatise on post-colonialism, right? <laughs> of course. Which everywhere. is, of course, everywhere around the world, around the world they're coming to America. <laughs> <laughs> on the boats and on the planes, yeah. you know, you got on a the, dream to are, make What it are the boats called again? What, what, the, oh, yeah, the, what uh, kind of boats are they the coming Zodiacs, on? The Zodiacs. On the Zodiacs. On the Zodiac. On the Golden Aztec. Yeah. Anachronistic planes. Um, on the... <laughs> so the the uh, how were you supposed to say uh, the names of the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Maria, which I am apparently mispronouncing, though I didn't know. I haven't got. I'm only halfway through your book, Shane. I haven't gotten to the the um, uh, pronunciation guide, which is at the end, and that I don't want to skip ahead to because the Kindle will think that that is my furthest page read and sync all my devices to oh, the stupid Kindle. Jeez. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, you would just pronounce them in the Spanish, so with the I-U-A-O pronunciation, but the, it should be Nina, like girl in Spanish. Um, not that those were their real names. Those were actually the nicknames for the boats, uh, all of them being sort of raunchy nicknames because sailors. Uh-huh. And there you go. Um, so, like, the, the Nina is the little girl. Um, the, the Pinta is the, like, the painted lady. And Santa Maria, you know, is St. Mary, but I believe that was sort of uh, an ironic name for uh, some ladies of the night at the time. So, yeah. All so, Nina Pinta and Santa Marina all basically mean prostitute? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's nuts. Oh, man. So, does he have an actual physical hammer? Uh, no, no. No, the hammer, the, the hammer of witches is like the, the hammer department. of his penis. <laughs> oh no! I don't that, think. I feel like that physically pained you to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't it, think it we're going to stop that. Oh, Shane, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the the no the 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 hammer and I'm not giving anything away because you learned this uh, you know within the first uh, fifth of the book um, the hammer is like a department of the Inquisition uh, rela- uh, related but but uh, but now distinct it's a sort of spinoff. Um, it was once a wholly owned subsidiary, but they've spun it off into its own company. Kind of like the, the department, as if the Department of Secrets in Harry Potter got spun off from the Ministry of Magic to be... Or a, like Aftermash. Right. Yeah. 
That's cool. So it's like they're like shock troops, like the hammer of witches will come down on you for your like violation of the witch code. Indeed. Well, it's it's named after there was an actual uh, treatise uh, from the I think it was written in the 1480s, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, that sort of spread across Europe at the time by this uh, these German fellows who uh, you know were writing about how to identify witches and then of course you know hunt them down. Um, and this treatise was called the Hammer. Or witches. There you go. I think we have oh. something now. It's called the Predator Drone of Terrorists. Mm. <laughs> Similar. I want. I thought you were going to say the Hammer of Predators. Like, <laughs> I would watch cover that movie. Yourself, cover yourself in mud, and then yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, if the Predator had a hammer, he'd be even more dangerous. But he'd also bring love to all the brothers and sisters all over this right. land. So, <laughs> what do you? What do you really I don't want? even know what we're talking about. It's a, it's a predator, hot <laughs> hammer out witches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, I don't think we're going to top the hammer is his penis, so maybe we should just call it quits uh, now. So, um, <laughs> I like that you have such high standards for us. <laughs> the uh, the um, obviously uh, we're going to put links to buy Hammer of Witches and all its its formats uh, in this post, um, and uh, you know we all heartily recommend that you do. And if you buy it through our links, you'll be supporting Overthinking It as well as uh, as well as the author uh, and the publisher and um, young adult literature revisionist young adult literature generally subver- <laughs> subversive young adult literature. Uh, generally, and then uh, we're also we're going to give away some copies. Uh, Shin, I think it's I, I think it's the fact that your publisher has made available uh, certain copies of the book, which you will sign, and that we will deliver to um, will deliver to uh, lucky overthinkers who win a contest. Is that not the case? That is certainly the case. So we will uh, we'll have a post later on in the week about uh, exactly what. Um, the content, uh, what the the content of the contest is. Wow, pulled that one out. And the, uh, the uh, you know the details will be in that in that post. Um, so uh, that's excellent. Thank you very much, Shana, for coming back. I hope this is not. Uh, I hope I hope the it's not as long as it's been till you come back. Oh uh, well, it was a lot of fun, and uh, thanks for for doing this. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, the uh, the YouTube channel is uh, search for overthinking it on YouTube to get the um, to get the recaps and to get the Eurovision videos uh, this Thursday, which is the twenty fifth of April, twenty thirteen, is uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, Best of Both Worlds, Part One and Two, uh, at um, movie theaters around the country, and we'll watch the site for details uh, about that. Um, on the site for details about the various physical in-person meetups and the various virtual meetups. I will be in the back row of the AMC Century City 15 here in, uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, this podcast will return next week. Until then, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve the hammer is my penis. No. Jewish <laughs> <laughs> mother now. So who remembers this Saturday morning cartoon?
Hammer man, hammer, hammer man, hammer, hammer man. He had, he had magical shoes uh, that transformed. It was like Shazam, except it was MC Hammer. It was called Hammer Man. Uh, and he had magical shoes from an old soul superhero in the 60s that when he wore, gave him parachute pants and gave him powers <laughs> to fight crime. Is this a dream you had? <laughs> no, this is not a dream I had. This is a real thing. Well, I mean, it's not real. It's- in the cartoon, or he's just a regular guy? I mean, D- MC Hammer primarily positions himself as a dancer, but <laughs> he doesn't really think of rapping as his primary skill set. <laughs> 